Hey, buddy, do you want to say a few words about this show before uh, people give it a listen? Yeah, I want to encourage everybody, if they want to uh, to learn more about the uh, Albums Are Dead podcast, to go to albumsaredead.com or visit us on twitter.com slash albumsaredead, on Facebook, again, slash albumsaredead, and uh, where else? We're on Instagram, uh, and if you look for Albums Are Dead on Instagram, how about that? We'll also be there. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. On most podcatchers, if you type in Albums Are Dead, uh, you're going to find us. Tell me, uh, do we make money doing this show? We do not make any money doing this show, and uh, all the songs that we play on the show are for preview purposes only, so make sure to go and support the artists. Even if they don't need support, it's still the right thing to do. Go uh, stream their music legally or buy the tracks, because uh, we want to keep above board, folks. All right, folks. Uh, with all that being said, I think we should get to our episode. What do you think? Let's do it! Did you, um, how much work did you put in preparing it? I mean, was it very difficult to break through and get a recording contract? You, well, we, um, we were with, as we were with several groups and, um, one of which sort of did a lot of live work and, uh, touring Germany and that kind of thing, uh, without much success. And we kind of got, we were unhappy doing that. So we decided to do something on our own. Why are you unhappy? Well, because there was that old work ethic cropping up in such that the harder you work, the, the more gigs you do and the more equipment you lug about, the more likely you are to be successful. And that's not true at all. What we actually found <laughs> is if you don't do a lot and just do, <laughs> and do, make really good music, then you're more likely to be successful. So that's why we fall into this for peers. Albums are dead. Oh. Uh, full disclosure. If you think that I just needed to find some like random thing of Tears for Fears talking to put into the intro, you are correct. <laughs> it sounded like it, right? It's just <laughs> saying nothing. Uh, we didn't like uh, we didn't like making music this way, so we did it this way, and then we were successful. Tears for Fears. Amazing. <laughs> what a great clip. Uh, I am slip with five eyes or slip. I am at Megamix.com. What is going on, friends? Uh, this week, we are going to talk about songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears. Uh, <laughs> and it's me taking the, the lead on this one. But before we get into it, I got to say, like last week, we did an episode about uh, <laughs> these terrible albums that you bought. Yes. You, you really put yourself out there. And I so did. much commentary about... I, I was like... I thought people would make comments about the albums, but the number one theme is just your bravery. Like... <laughs> how how you put yourself out there and I, I, it was just it's it was kind of heroic like now that i look back i I, I i like a week later mm. it's like i i didn't appreciate it at the time that i sat through it when we did this a week ago mm. yeah well thank you i appreciate that I, well, you know it's been a week it's been a long week a lot of uh, a lot of soul searching and and reflection on my part uh -huh. and to have the support of all the listeners and you, uh, as well, has been uh, invaluable. And so thank you from the bottom of my musical heart. And uh, again, keep commenting over at Albums Are Dead on Twitter if you want to tell us about yes. the worst albums you've ever bought. And in a few weeks, I will bring mine to the table. But not this week. Nope, nope, nope. 
uh, you are, are are pushing through with a uh, a, a, a pop classic from the uh, from the eighties. Uh, I do want to get into this one right away, but uh, I just I don't know why something makes me feel like you want to ask me some questions. It's like you're reading my mind here because I was just about to ask you a couple of uh, very important questions. All right, do it. Maybe a new feature at some point on on our show. We'll see how this goes. Okay. Uh, first of all, what what made you choose? Uh, what what what? What prompted you to choose this album to uh, talk about this week? Uh, so I did a poll on uh, Twitter a, a couple of months That's ago right. now. Did. And, and I asked people which of, and I listed like four albums that I wanted them to uh, to vote on for me to cover That's on the show. Right. I remember the one I voted for did not. Uh, Songs from the Big Chair actually received the lowest votes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what eventually ended up happening was... Um, we were lined up to do a recording a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and you were going to do your 20 albums and I had yeah. very little time to put things together. So yeah. I actually took the album that I knew the most of from the list and, yeah. and, <laughs> and the album with only eight tracks. And uh, with the limited time I had, I was like, well, I can throw this together in time to record a show. We ended uh, up delaying for uh, yes. about three weeks. So I could have put in more time and effort. But uh, ultimately, yep. I stuck with Tears for Fears, and so that was number one reason. The other reason is because uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty classic album, and I don't love it all the way through. But there are some tracks that uh, are so fucking great, and uh, that I've actually enjoyed more as time has passed. All right, um, my follow up question. Uh, I want to ask you before you ask me a follow-up yes. question. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this album? Like, uh, do you have any history with it, or no, no? I mean, I know the, I know uh, the the big the big singles really, and uh, of of the three kind of main. I mean, I know there's what five singles in this album, but uh, of the main of the big three, I mean, I I hated Shout, yeah, and I like the other two, and uh, that's about it. So I I you know took a listen. All right, and uh, really, just tried to familiarize myself. I don't have a lot of uh, uh, background on Tears for Fears, though. I was listening to. Uh, I've been doing a lot of watching. Um, there's this dude that breaks down uh, songs uh, on YouTube. Uh, his name's Rick Beato. He's a, a failed musician who is also now a professor and and does these YouTube videos where he breaks. He gets his dirty mitts on like uh, on the actual tracks. Oh, nice! He can isolate different tracks. And uh, he does that with he did that with uh, um, uh, I believe he did it with every, everybody wants to rule the world and I was like wow that is that is amazing so I was when you said you wanted to uh, talk about this album I was like all right sounds good like I'm into it and I uh, you know and so really I just kind of familiarized myself with the album and I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more to be quite honest. All right, uh, do you have any other questions? Yes, uh, my, what I really want to know, and I've never really asked you this before, uh-huh. but I'd like to know it. Uh, and I thought I should, because because you know, um, it's it's something that that uh, that uh, you're you're very interested in is is live music. Have you seen them? Oh, I'm a little surprised at this question. <laughs> I wasn't pre- mm. I wasn't prepared. No. Um, I have to think about this. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I have not seen Tears for Fears. Uh, I would see them. <laughs> they I think they were through. Um, since I've been in Toronto for three and a half years, I believe they came through. I I think it was a show at the. Uh, at the time, Air Canada Center, and mm-hmm. I think they were opening for someone, and I think it was just like, you know, Tears for Fears are a band that I'd pay $20, $25 to see, but 
yeah. you know, those full price tickets. Eh, it's all, yeah. it's, it's fun. one of those like summer series. Like when you saw Hall and Oates last year. Well, I uh, picked up all my summer series concerts for this year. When oh, the 20- please tell us. Uh, one of the groups uh, who we've covered on the show that I have not seen previously when you, when, ah. I, I wish, I wish I have to go back and <laughs> see if you asked me during that show, okay. if I'd seen him. But uh, I li- never have asked that question. <laughs> uh, but Lionel Richie. <laughs> yes. Coming up this summer, also coming up this summer, Heart. Yes. Uh, not uh, not uh, an artist whose album we've covered yet, but I will be seeing, and maybe we should cover their album at some point, Weird Al. Yes. Uh, and also Corey Hart, Glass Tiger. Nice. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I think there are a couple of others. I did, uh, for $40, I picked up some hoodie tickets. So. <laughs> Corey Hart though. More like Corey Fart. Am I right? <laughs> Burns to you. I, uh, the only thing I know of is, uh, the Cajun man took a son to see Weird Al and they were monumentally disappointed. Oh no. Yeah. All right. Well, he's playing with an orchestra, so I guess we'll see. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. They said he played a lot of originals. Well, apparently this tour is the hits. Oh, well, that's good. So, you know, we will get songs about food and Star Wars. Yes. So fat. Yes. And things of that nature. Excellent. So uh, hopefully it's all right. But I get, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, for $20, whatever. You can't go wrong. Uh, well, I guess you could. Uh, go back to last week. You can go wrong with $20 in your pocket. Uh, question for you. Have you seen yes. them? Uh, uh, no, I have not. Um, and, uh, I, I doubt I ever will, but, um, I, I believe I've seen someone play a cover live of, of, uh, perhaps shout. Well, so I can't that's if I same, remember correctly. Same thing. Same thing. Uh, I would imagine the band that you saw covering shout was disturbed. <laughs> no, no, I didn't see disturbed. All right. Uh, no, this would have been just some, some, like, I, I'm, I feel like I've, Maybe it was some other band. I don't know. Maybe it was someone doing Dead or Alive or something. I don't know. All right. Well, let's talk about this album, shall we? Let's do it. Uh, lots of Wicke in this episode. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Tears for Fears, for those of you who don't know, do not know, are an English pop band. They were formed in, my, this might be my favorite fact about them, a town yes. in England called Bath. <laughs> yes, I love I wish it was Bath. <laughs> Both England, uh, by Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, founded after the dissolu- uh, dissolution of their first band, the Mod Influence gra- Graduate, which they uh, which they talked about in uh, the intro. There, mm-hmm. they were initially associated with the new wave synthesizer bands of the early 1980s, but later branched out into mainstream rock and pop, which led to international chart success. They were a big deal on MTV. We will, when we go through the tracks, we'll talk about music videos. Another what? new segment. So many new segments on today's show. What, what What is that you speak of? Music videos. I will. That's I will it. get into it. I'm gonna. It's a teaser, everyone. Okay. Uh, their debut. <laughs> their debut album, The Hurting, released in 1983, reached number one on the UK albums chart. And their second album, which we will cover today, Songs from the Big Chair, released in 1985, reached number one on the US Billboard 200. And uh, I will talk about the songs and how well that album did as we go forward. They then released a third third album that was a platinum-selling album called The Seeds of Love. 
And uh, at that point, uh, the, the band the band parted ways with <laughs> with Orzabal retaining the Tears for Fears name, and he released albums kind of on his own as Tears for Fears. And then they reformed, of course, in the two thousands, and uh, they are touring again as a nostalgia act. And of course, wow. they're like, "Oh, let's put out a new album because that no one wants to hear." Let's be honest. Oh, you know, it's like it's th- it's the same story all the time. We see this and we hear this all the time. We go through these albums all. They broke up. Yep. And then they got back together for a, for for touring and for money. Um, not really, um, honestly, the backstory, the, the story about the songs on the album is a lot more interesting. The backstory of the band, uh, they met as teenagers in Bath, yes. <laughs> uh, not in the bath, everybody in the town no. of Bath. Uh, they yes. became session musicians for the band Neon, where they first met future Tears for Fears drummer, Manny Elias. Neon also featured Pete Byrne and Rob Fisher, who went on, be- went on to become Naked Eyes. So kind wow. of kind of a super group before they became like other groups. That's interesting. Uh, of course, they, as we said, they were in graduate. Uh, they released an album called "Acting My Age" and a single, "Elvis Should Play Ska." But this was in reference to Elvis Costello. Yes. Uh, and uh, it performed well in Spain and Switzerland, not so much in the UK. Uh, in 1981, they became more influenced by artists such as Talking Heads, Brian Eno, and Peter Gabriel. Ah, uh, mm. they departed the graduate and formed a band called History of Headaches, which they soon changed to Tears for Fears. The band's mm. name was inspired by Primal Therapy, developed by American psychologist Arthur Janov, which gained tremendous publicity after John Lennon became Janov's patient in 1970. That's right. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, Orzabal and Smith uh, did meet Janov in the mid 1980s, and they were disillusioned to find that he had become quite. Hollywood <laughs> and wanted the band to write a musical for him. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, as Tears for Fears, Orzabal and Smith intended to form the nucleus of the group and bring in surrounding musicians to help them complete the picture. Around this time, they met local musician Ian Stanley, who offered them free use of his home 8-track studio. Stanley began, uh, began working on uh, with the duo as their keyboard player after recording two demos. Uh, they were then signed to Phonogram Records, and uh, their first single, Suffer the Children, was released on uh, in November of 1981. Mm-hmm. And then they released uh, the first edition of Pale Shelter, and uh, none of these releases were terribly successful. They then, of course, uh, put out their third single, Mad World, which has been, uh, you hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, right. with, with many, many covers. Uh, that yeah. was released in November of 1982. The Hurting was released in March of 1983 and uh, was a successful album and kind of paved the way for songs from the big chair. Yes. So that's kind of your background uh, leading up to uh, this album. So let's talk about cool. songs from the big chair. Any comments so far from you? Uh, no, not really. I'm just soaking it all in. Uh, the first thing I have to say about songs from the big chair is this album cover. Yes. These two it's all just the two dudes on the cover with their like curly curly mops wearing yes. sweaters. <laughs> yep. And that's and it. The, the fucking earring on the one dude. Tremendous. Yeah. yeah. Uh Songs from the Big Chair, the second studio album from Tears for Fears, released February twenty fifth, nineteen eighty five on Phonogram Records. Uh the album peaked at number two in the UK and number one in the US and Canada. 
It spawned five hit singles and remains Tears for Fears' best-selling album to date. The uh, the title, and this is uh, Kurt Smith explaining the title. He says the title was my idea. It's a bit perverse, when, uh, but then you've got to understand our sense of humor. The big chair idea is from a brilliant film called Sybil about a girl with 16 different personalities. She's been uh-huh. tortured incredibly by her mother as a child, and the only place she felt safe and the only time she could really be herself was when she was sitting in her analyst's chair. She felt safe, comfortable, and wasn't using her different faces as a defense. It's kind of an up yours to the English music press who really fucked us up for a while. This is us now. They can't get us anymore. This is uh, ah. Kurt Smith in 1985. So fuck you, British press. I read that book, Sybil. I remember. Did you? I think I, I think Vixen had it, and I read it in like 1997. Wow, look at you reading in 1997. Because yeah, I, yeah, I never read. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I, we've been friends for you know 25 years. And I actually can't imagine a vision of you sitting back reading a book. I read all the time. I, I can see you reading wrestling like, magazines. Constantly. Like, constantly. I read constantly. Do you, with your spectacles on? No, I don't have spectacles. <laughs> but I do. I read constantly. I should get you some. I well, get... we don't have screens. Like, we can't do, we don't, we don't, like, like, no screens, right? Like, during the week. Yeah. At home. So it's like, if we're sitting there and it's like snack time or whatever and you know like i'll be i'll be reading a fucking book oh nice oh i'm reading all the time though i, I started reading fucking graphic novels uh-huh <laughs> Some comics ridiculous. comics books. fucking comic <laughs> well no but the, you know the books like the book comics. Yeah, of course <laughs> fucking ridiculous by the way uh songs anyway. from songs from the big jar peaked at number two on the uk albums chart and remained in the top 10 for over six months in the U.S., it reached number one for five weeks, non-consecutive, and in Canada, it was number one for nine weeks. Nice. And spent six months in the top three. In all three countries, the album went multi-platinum. It also reached number one in Germany and the Netherlands. And uh, I do have the list from July 13th, 1985. Uh, number one, Songs from the Big Chair, Tears for Fears. Would you like to know the rest of the top five? Yes, please. Number two. No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Uh, go back in our archives. We have talked about this album in the past. Okay. Number three. Yes. Around the World in a Day by Prince and the Revolution. Yes. Another first mentioning Prince on this show. <laughs> uh, number four. Reckless by Brian Adams. Mm. And number five. The Beverly Hills Cop Soundtrack. Oh yes! This is a pretty a top five. This is a pretty powerhouse top ten. Number six, Born in the USA. Yeah. Uh, number seven, <laughs> The Power Station. Yes. Get it on, bang it on, get it on. Yes. Uh, number eight, Make It Big by Wham. Number nine, Like a Virgin by Madonna. And number ten, Be Yourself Tonight by Eurythmics. And I have to say, number eleven, Invasion of Your Privacy by Rat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, no- tremendous. and number 12, Seven Wishes by Night Ranger. Ooh. Motor in. All right. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, in terms of uh, some, uh, well, I'll talk about critical reception in a little bit. Uh, so this album was initially an eight track, uh, not an eight track, like <laughs> piece of media. Uh, yeah. Eight tracks on the album. So uh it, yep. it uh, runs, though, at 41 minutes and 52 seconds, the original version, because the tracks, yeah. 
Um, all of, a lot of them clock in at over six minutes. So we're, we're putting <laughs> some epics out here. Yes. Uh, there were a number of reissues of this album. In 98, MFSL remastered and reissued the album with an extended head over heels and two bonus tracks. Mm-hmm. The album was remastered and reissued on CD in 1999 with more bonus tracks. Uh, But the big reissue happened in 2014 to mark the 30th anniversary, though I think that was the 29th anniversary. Yes. Um, It was released in five different formats, including a six-disc Super Deluxe Edition. I have wow. I have not listened How to is that necessary? I have not listened to this, but I would imagine that this was probably garbage. Uh here we <laughs> you are. You know, we... I have a big problem with these anniversary editions. Uh-huh. Because they're never correct. If an album comes out and they do a 30th anniversary 30 years after it comes out, that that's not that's not the 30th anniversary. Yeah, you're right. It's the it's the 29th. Because um, the, the year after is the first anniversary. Your first anniversary isn't the year that it comes out. <laughs> yes, it is, damn it. It's when it comes out. Its first anniversary is one year later. It's like the 25th anniversary of WrestleMania. That was the egregious. Yeah, because it was just WrestleMania. Yeah. It was really just WrestleMania 25. Like, it could have been like it's the 25th anniversary, but it was 24 years after the first one. That's right. Got to um, wrestle. So there we go. Here are actually the, the six discs in this thing. Disc one is the, the album with uh, with some additional tracks. It's 17 <sighs> tracks. Uh, are you fucking kidding me? Number two, edited songs from the big chair. Oh, my God. Number three, remix songs from the big chair. Oh, and that's the worst. Disc four, unreleased songs from the big chair. Oh, then we have the DVD audio 5.1 mix mm-hmm. and the DVD the video. Lot. By the way, DVD audio in 2014, a little late. <laughs> but anyways. Agreed. Uh, we are going to be focusing on uh, today's episode on the eight tracks on the original album. Uh, I have a copy of this on vinyl. I would have probably picked it up for a dollar. Yeah. Uh, because nice. Yeah, because this album is, I mean, it was a very popular uh, album sold a ton of copies. People love this band, but ultimately not a rare piece of vinyl to pick up. It's uh, no. pr- probably if you go to uh, your local record store selling used stuff, they'll, they'll probably sell it now for like five to ten dollars. But yeah, um, you can get it for pretty cheap if you want a copy of it on vinyl. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to get into the tracks? Do you have any other comments? No, I'm excited to uh, to break it down. Let's do it. All right, let's go track by track. Here we go. Are you drinking? <laughs> Are you Coke drinking Zero. Coke Zero? Nice. All right. So this is Shout. Yes. This was first released on November 23rd, 1984. It is the second single from Songs from the Big Chair. It ended up being their sixth UK Top 40 hit, peaking at number four in January of 1985. But in the US, it reached number one. On August 3rd, 1985, and remained there for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the most successful songs of 1985, and of course, regarded as one of the band's most uh, recognizable songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ra- uh, Roland Orzabal said this about the album, or about the song. A lot of people think that Shout is just another song about primal scream theory, continuing the themes of the first album. It is actually more concerned with political protest. It came out in 1984 when a lot of people were, were still worried about the aftermath of the Cold War, and it was basically an encouragement to protest. 
Well, alrighty then. I'm not a big fan of Shout, I gotta be honest with you. Neither am I. Um, the promotional People video... People love Shout, but I'm like, give me some head over heels any day. Uh, oh, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> promotional video for Shout, filmed in late 1984, was the second Tears for Fears video directed by famed music producer Nigel Dick. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you telling me that they had like a a video presentation paired with the music? Yes. It was like it was like a mini TV show. Wow. Where they would play they would pretend Oh, so it would be like they'd have like uh, twenty minutes and they'd play the song and then have like a TV show around it? No, it was like uh the length of the song. No. And and all it was is the band basically pretending like they are singing the song in different settings and situations. Okay, interesting. All right. Uh, this one features footage of Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith at Dirtle Door in Dorset, England. Nice. <laughs> as well as at a studio performance with the full band, performing the song amidst a crowd of family and friends. The video reportedly cost only 14,000 pounds to produce. Uh-huh. Uh, along with uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, the Shout music video had a big hand in helping establish Tear for Fears in America due to its heavy airplay on, at the time, not that new anymore, about three years old, MTV. Well, it's a couple of white guys, so of course MTV is going to play them. Uh, so yes, there was actually a channel dedicated to playing these music videos all day long. Yes. Amazing. And if you and if you were a couple of white guys, no problem getting No problem at all. Uh, from Genius... Dot com. Ah, yes. Shout was released as a single in 1984. Uh, it was uh, number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks and is one of their most recognizable and excessively sampled songs. <laughs> <laughs> From Song Facts, this was written by Tears for Fears frontman Roland Orzabal, uh and keyboard player Ian Stanley. In the liner notes to the single, Orzabal explains... The song was written in my front room on just a small synthesizer and drum machine. Initially, I only had the chorus, which was very repetitive, like a mantra. I played it to Ian Stanley, our keyboardist, and uh, Chris Hughes, the producer. I saw it as a good album track, but they were convinced it would be a hit around the world. And honestly, if they'd asked me, I would have said album track, and I would have been wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But of course, what we really want to know is what do the people at song meetings think? Oh, please. It's been, it's been many weeks since we've heard from our friends at song meetings. Let's do it. Uh, user Fuhrer says, I like the song, but the disturbed version of the song is a lot better sang with some real emotion. <laughs> is that dude's name Fuhrer? Fuhrer. <laughs> Jesus. Not like Fuhrer as in the Fuhrer. F-U-R-O-R. Oh, okay. oh like the Fuhrer. Yeah. Furor. Yeah, okay. Furor. Okay. Um, God damn it. User Demon Mania 78 said, Let me guess. This song is about a dad fucking screaming in his son's face and then beating the shit out of him. Oh my God. Can you fucking believe it? Oh my God. Uh, song meanings. Thanks a lot for your, you for for your input. Uh, that is Shout. Yeah. Uh, I agree with your assessment. Uh, I don't think much of this song. It's not. I don't think it's a bad song. There's just nothing that's bad. I, I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it. No, me neither. Uh, let's go to track two. Yes. <laughs> so eighties. I love the stacks on the phone. Is that like a harp? 
Yeah, it's... Uh, this is The Working it's Hour. Ever. Uh, one of the One of the three tracks that were not singles. Uh, from Genius.com, Tears for Fears were touring when the herd, uh, with the herding when Manny Elias came up with a drum pattern. He suggested it to frontman Roland, who took some chords from keyboardist Ian Stanley and wrote words to it. They recorded it on tape and built it up from there. <coughs> Roland has stated that it deals with Kurt and him realizing they had become a business, what was hard for them to deal with in their early 20s, so he wrote his aggression off with The Working Hour. Okay. So this song is about like, it's my job now, man, to be a musician. Yeah. Uh, from Song Facts. Okay. Let's just listen for a second. If you're picking up a Peter Gabriel vibe on this song, that's probably because Jerry Murata contributed to the track handling drums and saxophone arrangements. Murata was one of Gabriel's go-to studio pros in the 80s. Okay. Uh, this almost became the album title, so The Working Hour, but Orzabal vetoed it in favor of Songs from the Big Chair, uh, so it could have been called The Working Hour. Songs from the Big Chair, better title. Absolutely. Still no lyrics, but they'll come. From Song Meanings... Long intro. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is my favorite part. This is like 80s. Oh my god, isn't it? Uh, song meanings. User Sozluk says, I see this song as a lament of capitalism and particularly supply-side economics. Mm. You work to eat, you li- eat to live, you live to work. The cycle is complete. When Roland sings, we are paid by those who learn by our mistakes. He is making a metaphor for how employers use their employee sacrifice for their own benefit. They have other people making mistakes so they can learn from them. They reap the rewards, but assume none of the risks and consequences. And I like to think to myself, if this is true, it's like, you know that you're like, (laughs) this music is like capitalism. Like this is, (laughs) yep. this is like one of the big, like the the big things that that benefits from capitalism. It's just always funny. Yep. Uh, We have user... Uh, Don Yo Guy, who says, This is probably my favorite song of all time. <laughs> wow. It's really? A, it's about the pressure the band was under to release another album quickly after the success of The Hurting. It's amazing how much you can say with just a few words. Okay. That's favorite a- song of all time. Oh, all right. Like, good for you, dude. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that's the working hour. <laughs> eh. Yeah, it's all right. It's fine. Uh, now, now business picks up. Yes. So everybody knows this. Everybody wants to rule the world. Before I get into the song facts, meanings, all that business, my personal thought about this song, there was a point in time where I was like, this song is dog shit, and I don't know why it's special, and it bored me, and I just didn't, I just didn't do anything for me. And, uh... Now, uh, at 40 years old, I fucking love this song. It's so good. Um, listen, uh, you know, I couldn't... This this album... I mean, we weren't very old when these when this album... The albums in this era came out. Uh, in a time where I was really listening uh, in teenage years to music. Didn't want really anything to do with 80s music. So didn't really pay much attention. But now, as we, you know, you kind of get older and can take a, a, a look back. It's like, God damn it. 
what a, what a there's just some songs are just so fucking fantastic and this is one of them and i would say like if i was to put together a compilation of let's just say a dozen tracks that like defined the 80s this has to be on there oh for sure uh, so the song, the song was written by uh, Roland Orzabal, Ian Stanley, and Chris, Chris Hughes, with production handled by Hughes. Released in 1985 uh, as the third single from Songs from the Big Chair. Uh, the lyrics detail the desire humans have for control and power and centers on themes of corruption. Uh-huh. Music critics praised Everybody Wants to Rule the World in their retrospective reviews, with some including the song in their ret- respective decade lists. It is regarded mm-hmm. as, a, as a group's signature song. Commercially, the song garnered success on charts internationally, peaking at number two in Ireland and the United Kingdom, and at number one in Canada, New Zealand, and in the United States. Right on. Uh, Nigel Dick... <laughs> directed the song's accompanying music video which received promotion from MTV it shows the group's lead singer Kurt Smith riding an antique Austin Healey 3000 sports car around various locations in Southern California intercut with shots of the band performing the song in a studio man people loved back then music videos where you just go to places <laughs> let's see the I mean, world here I am in front of some famous place uh, the Village Voices Paz and Jop Critics Poll for 1985 said that this was the 25th best single. Okay. Uh, though this is a weird list. It shares a spot. So it's it's the 25th best, but it's tied with uh, Don't Come Around Here No More by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and yep. Smooth Operator by uh, Sade. Yes. Uh, Pitchfork placed the song at number 82 on their list of the best songs of the 80s. All right. Uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World was banned by the BBC during the duration of the first Gulf War (laughs) due to the song's political themes. What? I know, right? crazy. Uh, From Song Facts, Everybody Wants to Rule the World is a line from a 1980 Clash song, Charlie Don't Surf. Uh, Did Tears for Fears lift it? Joe Strummer of The Clash thought so. He recounted a story to, mu- to Musician Magazine about confronting Roland Orzabal uh, in a restaurant, informing Orzabal that you owe me a fiver. Strummer said that Roland reached into his pocket and produced a five-pound note ostensibly as compensation for poaching the line in the hit title. Okay, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, from Song Meanings. Yes, please. <laughs> User... Release the Kraken. <laughs> yes. Says, first of all, I want to say how deeply nostalgic the song makes me for an era when it was written, especially in uh, the relatively calm known as the Cold War. Basically, the lyrics are quite uh, prescient in uh, that the speaker reminds the listener that political liberty and pleasures of capitalism are all relatively new to the world scene and are not permanent. The speaker desires to live to the fullest during the special time in history by taking full advantage of its many pleasures and liberties before the true nature of the world war and change comes around again at last. When did this guy write that? February 26, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was much calmer time in 1985. I guess. (laughs) 2011. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, User Ryan. Fucking countries with fucking fingers on the fucking nuclear buttons. <laughs> yep. All mutually assured destruction, like, on, like, oh, fuck off. An easier world back then. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, user Riot Pack says, <laughs> I, Riot think, Pack. <laughs> I think this song is about homosexuality. <laughs> yes! Here's some examples. When they do it, I'll be right behind you. I.e., right behind you in your a-hole. <laughs> oh, come the fuck on. Also the line, all for freedom and for pleasure. Of course, this means a-hole pleasure. Point proven. What the fuck? You know, again, the best thing to do on song meanings is to sort songs by their rating. Yes. And then go to the worst. Yes. Uh, everybody wants to rule the world. Fantastic track. Love it. And... Uh, I don't know what else to say. What do you got to say? Oh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's one of the all-time great uh, tracks from the 80s. Just a, a tremendous uh, achievement in terms of music. And uh, I love it. Let's go to uh, the next track, the uh, last track on side A. Yes. <laughs> Scree. I'm going disco it's like 80s dance. It's like, is this Janet Jackson? It's like Peter Gabriel did disco. <laughs> kind of is. World influence. All right. Uh, so this is Mother's Talk. Yes, the first uh, single. The song was released six months in advance of the album and showcased the band's edgier sound as compared to their debut album. It's very edgy. Written in 1983, it was first publicly performed during the band's late 1983 tour. In early 1984, the band went into the studio to record the song as their next single. Uh, though the recording sessions with their new producer, Jeremy Green, did not work out as planned, and the recording was scrapped. Oh, okay. Uh, the band's previous producer, Chris Hughes, was then brought back into the fold, and the song was re-recorded and finally released as a single in August of 1984. Hughes stayed on as the producer for the second album, and this is Songs from the Big Chair. All right. The song stems from two ideas. One is something that mothers say to their children about pulling faces. They say that the child will stay like that when the wind changes. <laughs> The other idea is inspired by the anti-nuclear cartoon book When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. And that's what okay. Roland Orzabal said. Okay. Song Facts says, uh, In the U.S., Everybody Wants to Rule the World was the album's first single and the band's breakthrough hit in the country, and a re-recorded version of Mother's Talk was released as the fourth single in the U.S. Okay. So there you go. The strings used in the intro were sampled from an undisclosed Barry Manilow record. Ooh. And of course, song meanings. Oh no! I, I got two great comments. Yes, please. the first one from Javelson says, "I think this song is partly about the resurgence of progressivism and its belief that though social engineering and behavior modification, th sorry, through social engineering and mm -hmm. behavior modification, we can all be turned into better worker bees to slave away for the system, albeit a nihilistic nilist system." And before you comment. User Tejdog says, I think it's about vampires. <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh, that's fucking tremendous. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, this oh is... Oh, my God. Uh, this song to me, um, it's better than Shout, but, but you know, filler to me. It's all right. You know, it's, it's, got, it's got some interesting kind of pieces to it. You know, and, 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 the, and the, the hook's pretty good. Uh, let's flip the record over, shall we? Yes. Oh, 
take forever. <laughs> so, this is kind of an interesting track. Yes. Like, it's kind of crooning. I guess not yep. crooning. Like, this... this a little bit. This feels like a track that you would put on, like, Faith. Right? It's like, yes. oh, we really want to showcase George Michael as a soulful singer, so we just... Yes. But this is a Tears for Fears album from years earlier. Yes. Uh, this is uh, this was the last single from the album, the fifth uh, single. Uh, released, uh, reached the top ten in Ireland, peaked at number 28 in New Zealand. All right. Uh, originally, they um, Roland Orzabal was going to offer this to British musician Robert Wyatt to record, though it was later decided that they would record the song themselves. Okay. Um, and apparently, on the single, there's a uh, on the B side, there is a cover of Robert Wyatt's "Sea Song." Okay. Uh, of course, uh, sorry. In the course of the song, Orzabal shouts "William" prior to a saxophone solo. The shout was directed okay. to Tears for Fears touring saxophonist at the time, Will Gregory, best known today as the keyboardist, producer, and composer of the electronic music duo Goldfrap. Ah, okay. That's that's a fucking deep reference. Uh, the music video for this song features a shirtless Orzabal and was filmed at an aircraft hangar in Seattle, Washington, and again, <laughs> was directed by Nigel Dick. Nigel Dick! Let me find out a little bit more about Nigel Dick here. Yes, uh, please do it. He directed uh, Baby One More Time. Oh, good job, Nigel. And he directed uh, Do They Know It's Christmas video. Nigel Dick all over the, the big songs of the time. Well, and here, here's my favorite thing about Nigel Dick. He began his career in the record business working at Stiff Records. <laughs> hey. <laughs> we were both in our yes. 40s. <laughs> yep. <laughs> From Song Facts, the, intros uh, the introspective ballad finds the narrator taking a hard look at his beliefs, including whether his destiny is created through free will or determined by fate and challenging the listener to do the same. Orzabal remains cryptic about the song's meaning, but it's one of his favorite tracks on the album. Very simple, a nice sort of jazz swing to it, he said. Now, I don't want to harp on about the lyrics or anything like that, but I think they're the most potent and powerful lyrics we've ever put onto vinyl. I'm just fucking yawning, honestly. It's put me to sleep. Uh, user Old School Ooh, says... Okay. Being one of the biggest Tears for Fears fans in our country. Yes! I often look differently to their lyrics. I think that in this case, he is afraid for answers or the consequences of these answers. That's why he believes. Yes. He believes that everything will work out eventually. By the way, he Tears for Fears he refers to as TFF. Yes! So there you go, from song meanings. Oh my gosh, <laughs> biggest ones... Biggest fan in the country. One can of the you, biggest fans in the country. Like, honestly, like, what a resource Song Meanings is when you can get the biggest fan in the country to come and comment oh, on the message Oh, it's like the board. time I had the guy who was the, uh, the, 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 who knew the most about Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> the expert on Jimi Hendrix. Remember that? It's so amazing. Fuck, we got a lot of info from them. Uh, let's go to the next track. Yes. So this is Broken. Yeah, picking it up a little. Uh, definitely uh, not a single, though uh, a lead into the next song. Yes. Uh, it seems to deal, this is from Genius.com, a song that seems to deal with a theme that has been hinted on in the working hour, the endless struggle as an adult to cope with the demands of modern life. 
Uh, then I wrote <laughs> my comments because I wanted to make sure I said this. Yes. I said, very 80s sounding lead into Head Over Heels, great guitar solo, and mm-hmm. then the intro riff for Head Over Heels plays. Kind of a throwaway track, but I like it. Yeah, I think it's a fine it's a fine little uh, little two and a half minute uh, ditty, for lack of a better term. And uh, that's all I have. There's nothing else on the song because here's the... I know. It's a nice teaser. I kind of like the uh, kind of like the tease to Head Over Heels. So yes. Uh, so speaking of Head Over Heels, heels, let's get right into it. Do it. All right. So this is Head Over Heels. Before I get into all the facts, meanings, etc., fucking monster track. Love it. Yes. Yes. Like, and again, not as late a bloomer to this one as everybody wants to rule the world, but still relatively a late bloomer. Yeah. Like back when I was, when I was getting into 80 songs back in the mid nineties. Yes. I was like, ah, this is fine. And uh, I'd say about 10 years ago, it first hit me like, this is fucking amazing. Oh, this is the best song on the album for me. Absolutely. So good. Uh, This is the fourth single from songs from the big chair. Uh, and uh, peaked at number 12 in uh, 1985 in the UK. Uh, oh. It peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US. Uh, Head Over Heels had been developed nearly two years prior as part of a segue with a song, Broken, which we just heard, uh, which was previously a standalone B-side to the 1983 Pale Shelter. As the two songs share the same piano synth motif, Head Over Heels eventually came to be sandwiched in between two bookend parts of Broken in live performances. So this track, you have broken a studio version before Head Over Heels. Yeah. You go to the studio version of Head Over Heels, and then this will bleed into a live version of Broken on the album. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Broken, I mean, yeah, whatever, right? Yep. Uh, it's basically a romantic love song. This is Roland Orzabal, by the way. Uh, yeah. Basically a romantic love song and one of the most simple tracks that Tears for Fears have ever recorded. It is a romance song that goes a bit perverse at the end. Okay. Uh, there was a music video. Yes. Uh, produced by Nigel Dick. <laughs> of course. A lighthearted video in comparison to the band's other videos. It is centered around Roland Orzabal's attempts to get the attention of a librarian, while a variety of characters, including a chimpanzee wearing a Red Sox jersey, engage in shena- shenanigans in the library. Yes. Uh, this was uh, filmed at Emmanuel mm-hmm. College Library in Toronto, Canada. It was. I just saw that fact. Well done. From Song Facts, and this is uh, this leads into a lot of commentary on song meanings. Okay. The song featured in the 2001 movie Donnie Darko. Oh, God. And you, I can just already tell, like, the song meanings fuckers getting all riled up. During a scene where the camera flies around the school, director Richard Kelly said on the DVD commentary that the scene in which the tune was used was written and choreographed specifically with the song in mind. Yeah. There are two versions of the song out there. The shorter version ends in a cold stop, and the longer version is known as the preacher version because it opens with uh, Orzabal reciting the lyrics from the song, I believe, uh, as if delivering a sermon. Okay. Uh, 
song meanings has a lot of commentary, but um, a lot of it centers around Donnie Darko, and then a lot of people mad <laughs> that they're of like, course. it's it's from it's not just from Donnie Darko, asshole. Yes, because you know, got to have a spirited discussion about it. Um, I will read one of them from Elasticated. They say, I think the line, it's hard to be a man when there's a gun in your hand, is him symbolizing his absolute frustration concerning his lover, and he doesn't know how far he'll allow his desperation to go, which is why the next line, oh, I feel so, is left open. He can't truly express how he feels with words. Oh, my. Uh, And then, uh, just like that, we're on the last track. Here we go. Yes, we are. Flying through so the, the the applause, of course, we're we're going from uh, from the broken live. Yeah. This is listen. Yes. Uh, I only have stuff from song meanings uh, on this okay. one. I, I like this track. It's a good song. Uh, what I like the most about it is when we get into the. Yeah. I mean, that's that's totally lifted from Phil. It sounds like Phil, and that's why we like it. Yeah. Uh, so user Lehman on song meaning says this song is just amazing post rock a decade before anyone knew what that was. Uh-huh. If you have ever brushed off songs from the big chair as a relic of the eighties, give it a close listen. It's a masterpiece of any era of rock. I mean, it's a pretty good album. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. I agreed. Um, there are lyrics to this song. Uh, people on song meanings are, trying to figure out what language it is. Okay. Uh, user Ryan Adams fan. Oh boy. Oh boy. Said, well said, where do you get Spanish from as again, a language guess, not a chance. It's an African language, but no idea what one you only have to listen to the rhythms of the song to tell this a wonderful end to a wonderful album. Smiley face. Okay. Pretty good song. Uh, pretty good. I, I like it as a as a as an ender to this. Yeah, it's a nice closer. I like it. Uh, so that is listen, and uh, those are the tracks from songs from the big chair. Very nice. Chanson de grand chaise. Yes. <laughs> uh, cu- translation there. A couple of reviews for y'all. First of all, just kind of a summary of the reviews uh, on the Wiki. Um, yes. Largely well-reviewed. All music gives it four and a half stars. Uh, I'll go to Consequence of Sound in a second. The Guardian, though, gave it three out of five. Okay. Mojo, four out of five. Q, four out of five. Um, Some of these reviews, though, are about the reissue. Yes. Uh, In terms of uh, the Wickeyes part on critical reception... Uh, in his review, Billy McKinley of Melody Maker stated that none of you should really be too surprised that Tears for Fears have made such an excellent album, calling it an album that fully justifies the rather sneering told-you-so looks adopted by Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal on the sleeve before concluding, a lot of awful people will, of course, go before in nature and noted its unflinching lyrical honest, or sorry, will go on and on about the overcoats, the Lotus Eaters, and the alleged lack of death. And an awful lot yeah. of people will have to eat an awful lot of words. So that's it there. Okay, there we go. Rolling Stone critic Don Shuey uh, wrote that Tears for Fears sounds a lot more like other British bands and observed traces of U2's social conscience, 
the Bunnymen's echoing guitars and XDC's contorted pop wit on the album, but commented that Chris Hughes' production nudges songs from the big chair slightly ahead of the pack. Uh, you know, that's not that's not a, a bad comment, actually, because it's got that slicker production than, than some of the other contemporaries. Uh, in uh, August of 2017, Pitchfork... Yes, please. Uh, what do you think they rated this one? I'm going to say 7 out of 10. They gave it an 8.9. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and they said, just at the very start of this, uh, this article by Tal Rosenberg said, Tears for Fear's second album is one sound of is the one sound of pop rock in the 80s. Its personal psychology, meticulous compositions, and world-sized choruses evoked the loss of control in an overwhelming era. And then he says, Welcome to your life. From the moment you enter the world, you're traumatized, first by your very birth, then the very uh, every subsequent moment of your existence, each of which will have a profound and significant effect on your behavior. In childhood, when you experience emotional distress, that pain remains buried underneath time and memory. And then he goes into uh, Arthur Janoff and the Primal Scream, and I won't get further into it. Okay. Uh, Consequence of Sound in 2014 gave this re-release an A+. Oh, wow. Uh, so they enjoyed it quite a bit. <laughs> yes. In 1985, Robert Criscow gave Songs from the Big Chair a rating of B. So not good. He says, Never one to pay much mind to the plaints of English lads with synthesizers. I got <laughs> duly annoyed at the surface and let go at, at that. And let it go at that. Imagine my surprise when I discerned substance underneath uncommon command of guitar and piano Baker Street sax synthesizers more jagged than as deemed meet by the arbit uh, arbiters of dance pop accessibility. Even found a lyric that went, we are paid by those who live by our mistakes, not bad at all. Yet, in the end, the surface is still annoying, not so much pretentious as <laughs> portentous, promising a depth and drama English lads have been falling short on since the dawn of progressive rock. All right. Uh, so there are some, uh, I do have some Amazon reviews, but, uh, I won't read them. Largely the negative ones are about the, the uh, quality of the re-release. So yes, let's just go to the tour. Uh, they did tour this, uh, this album, uh, in 1985. It was a monster tour. I can imagine. Uh, so I have here, uh, the set list. Uh, and this is from a site called, uh, MrRandom.com who posted a lot about Tears for Fears. Yeah, um, the work. So they uh, listen, plays over the PA, and then the band takes the stage. They go right into Mother's Talk, and then Broken Head Over Heels and Broken. So uh -huh. we're kicking some ass right away. Yeah. Uh, we have the working hour kind of in the middle of the set. Uh, they leave Shout, and everybody w wants to rule the world as a back-to-back -back near the back end. They end the they end with the hurting and change. Okay. Uh, they were supported on the tour for the first part of the tour, which uh, took place largely in England, by Vitamin Z. <laughs> uh, eventually, I've never heard of that, that group before. Uh, eventually, when they make their way over to Canada to start things off, they are in London, Kitchener, Hamilton, and then four shows at Massey Hall in Toronto. Nice. Uh, with Idle Eyes as, uh, as Ooh, the Idle supporting Eyes. group. Nice. Uh, so they make their way through the larger Canadian cities. They go through the States. Uh, Larry Gowan. 
Yes. Start supporting them. That would have been an amazing show. Oh my gosh. They go over to Japan and Australia. They make their way back to North America where they play a show at the Winnipeg Arena. Beauty. Uh, and the set list largely the same. Uh, I have the set list up here from setlist.fm, but awesome that they'd be in Winnipeg. Then they make their way to Lethbridge. If they were in Winnipeg. Probably the concert must have sounded sounded like shit because it was in the Winnipeg Arena. Yeah, this is August 24th, 1985. Yeah. Uh, and they go back through the States. They end, uh, they end their North American tour with four shows at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, uh-huh. At this point, they're being supported by The Adventurers. Ooh, okay. I, at first, I thought it was The Avengers. <laughs> the Avengers. <laughs> so exciting. Uh, and then back to Europe, and they end uh, with five shows at the Hammersmith Odeon in London, England. So... There right. you go. Uh, apparently, they didn't tour again until 1990 with the Seeds of Love. So, took a little okay. bit of a break. But that is the tour, and uh, that's largely it for songs from the Big Chair. Yeah, that was a good, uh, a nice little uh, journey. Um, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll I'm going to recommend it uh, as give it a listen. Uh, it's only 40 so minutes long. It's got four tremendously good songs. And, uh, or well, sorry, two really, really massively good songs. Two other pretty good songs. Uh, so it's, you got a halfway to a, to a full two thumbs up. <laughs> I'll give it a thumbs up. Uh, I'll give it one and a half thumbs up. Okay. Uh, but because on the strength of those songs, like those songs are incredible. Well, they really are. Uh, and again, I, one of the questions I had for myself, because I was familiar with the singles, but not the whole album, was. Is this album worth listening to? Yes. Or should you just pick up the singles? But for the reasons you explained, it's eight tracks, 45 minutes. Half of it's really good. Nothing on it is offensive. It's worth picking oh. up. You know, put it on your record player in the background or, or stream it on Spotify. And uh, it's it's good music. Or you can stream it on Spotify. On Spotify. But of course, do it legally. Of course, always. Uh, so always. that... So that's it for Tears for Fears. Any, uh, do you know what you're doing next week yet? I do not know. Okay. I, I mean, I'm keeping it a secret. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we have a week, and then the secret will be revealed. So uh, keep your eyes out for more. Go to albumsaredead.com for all our back catalog, yes. and follow us on Twitter at albumsaredead. And uh, yeah. if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at slip with five eyes, but whatever. I'm uh, at megamix.com on Twitter. I'd like to apologize to anybody for months may have gone to our site or on our Mixcloud site and tried to listen to our Parliament episode and had it be Van Halen <laughs> where I uploaded the same two fucking <laughs> the same show over in two ones so you'll see that they're they're out of order on Mixcloud but that's okay uh, I also do our website I, appreci- I appreciate that on our website though you have now written what the podcast is about thank you well, you're, you're, you're very welcome so. alright until next week we'll see ya Good night.